Roger Force, W6VDS Englewood, W6SFL on the Technet is calling and standing by. Plans for a technocracy gray fleet demonstration such as the West Coast had never seen before. It is suggested that we travel U.S. Highway 99 from Los Angeles to Vancouver. Technocracy is on the move. Let's roll in the Technate. Salute and happy landing. Today's dead idea? Well, it's not quite a dead idea, actually, and I'll explain that in a moment. Today, we are starting our new series on technocracy, which was specifically a movement from the 1930s that proposed that all of North America should be a single, unified nation governed by scientists. It was one of the many radical ideas proposed to solve the problem of the Great Depression, and they thought that North America had enough resources and technology to produce enough food and products for everybody to live in an economy of abundance, and the world that they envisioned was pretty much like Star Trek, but without the stars. And the only thing holding us back from that world, according to them, was the capitalistic price system, which would be abolished in the North American technate. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who has been stockpiling Kajagoogoo records in anticipation of the coming collapse of the price system. <laughs> the technocrats of the 1930s predicted the imminent collapse of the dollar bill, the price system, the entire economy, but not just the economy, which had already been collapsed since the stock market crash of 1929, of course, but of the price system itself. That is, a whole economy run on the exchange of money. They thought it was all just going to take itself down because it was because of various reasons we'll get into. And the way virtually all economies in the history of the world were organized was at its end, according to them. Yet, they were by no means apocalyptic prophets of doom. Rather, they thought that there was more than enough goods and resources for everybody to live in prosperity. But to have that techno-paradise, the one thing we'd have to give up would be the anarchy of the open market. And we'd have to turn administration over to centralized planning by those who knew what they were doing, quote-unquote, namely scientists, technicians, and experts. So in other words, basically, Rachel really doesn't have to worry. She's going to have plenty of Kajagoogoo albums once Bill Nye the Science Guy becomes the continental director of the mm. technique. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. With me today are some old and new co-hosts. We have John, star of our multiple Thanksgiving holiday specials. Hello, it's it's me. <laughs> it's you once again. <laughs> Famous from our Thanksgiving holiday specials. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule in Hollywood. I launched your career, so... Yes, yes. thank <laughs> I'm, you. I'm glad that you can have time for the little people again. Yes. <laughs> and we also have a co-host, Ingrid. Hey, Hi. <laughs> uh, thanks for being on the show. Ingrid, you were an economics major? I was. Yeah, and a Star Trek buff. <laughs> uh, I don't know how much I remember about either of those, but yeah, I dabble in both. <laughs> <laughs> Doubly applicable. Yes. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Excellent. Also, a quick note to listeners. Announcement. We are doing a new portrait giveaway for the first 20 people to leave a review for us on Stitcher, specifically on Stitcher. Because we've got reviews on iTunes, but we've got Zilcho on Stitcher right now, like 
fat old zero. So let's try to get that up. If you are among the first 20 people to review us on Stitcher, just leave an honest review. Even if you say we suck, we will do your portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. More on that at the end of the episode. All right, today we are talking about technocracy. And I want to be clear what we mean by that, because technocracy is a word that we still use for vague stuff today, mostly this kind of like vague dystopian feeling that scientists are just a little bit too in control. But I don't mean that kind of vague thing. I mean something very specific from the 1930s, which is a plan where scientists were going to be the actual official leaders. They're actually going to be the ones in control if history went the way that the technocrats thought it was going to. Other thing I want to say, I want to be totally upfront that, like I mentioned at the very beginning, this is actually not completely a dead idea. In the course of my research for this, I discovered that there is actually still a technocracy movement today. And uh, it's far past its heyday. Uh, It's really just kind of small fringe movement today, but they still exist. So this is too interesting to pass up. So we're just going to roll with it. So this is a non-dead idea. Faded, but not dead yet. Okay, so what is technocracy? So, you said you like Star Trek, right? So if you think of Star Trek, you know, you know, so how do they get goods in Star Trek? Um, I think depending on the series. Yeah. Replicators. Replicators, right? You can just, it's practically out of thin air, right? Energy converted to matter, and then you can have as much as you want of anything. Do they have money? No, unless we're talking Deep Space Nine and right. aliens with gold pr- gold press. Yeah, the Ferengi are all about money, right? <laughs> yes. But in the Federation, yes. no need for money because you've got as much of anything Eggs. as you want, basically, right? So their vision for the future was actually a lot like that. They thought that North America had enough natural resources combined with enough advanced technological infrastructure like factories and things that you could basically have as much as you wanted of anything. (laughs) It would be like having replicators, but in their minds it wasn't replicators, it was just factories working at top capacity. Problem is, you can't produce things at your maximum potential under the price system the way they saw it. Because... The problem that you run into is if you just flood the market with product, what happens? Well, it becomes worthless, right? Yeah, you have a glut. Yeah, you have yeah. a glut, and the price drops out of the market, and yeah. so the people producing it can't make a profit, sure. and so they don't want to do that, right? And the other thing the other thing that was stopping, that according to the technocrats was stopping us from having an economy of abundance, was the more advanced our technology becomes in terms of being able to produce things, the more people get replaced by machines, right? Sure. They called it technological unemployment. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that in the price system, of course, is if people aren't employed, they aren't earning money in order to buy the things that you're producing. So the whole economy comes to a screeching halt. But if you don't have money, if you're just producing stuff and money is not involved, you could just produce as much as you want the cost gets super low. Everybody can have as much as you want. Sure. <laughs> Nothing could be wrong with this plan, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, theoretically, you're making more than people actually want. But I yeah. Think a, they, there's, economists there's would say a that. Part, exactly. Yeah. 
there is more, a lot more to the nuance, but that's basically the nut. That's basically the germ of their idea. Sure. Is that money is actually holding everything back, holding us back from having the paradise of abundance that we could be having. So this is how the technocrats thought, and let's just let the sheer audacity of this line <laughs> of thinking sink in for a second, because this is all happening in the 1930s. In the middle of the Great Depression, one of the most like, times of the least availability of goods, the hardest times, the greatest likelihood of just starvation that North America has seen in any of its recent history. And yet they had the audacity to be like, yeah, actually, we can have as much as we want of anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not the Dust Bowl. It's the, yeah. it's the price system. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. They had a completely different idea. So it's a real like mind bender to wrap your mind around this. All right, let's get into it then. So what I'm going to do for the opening scene here is to put you guys in the time and place. I'm going to start with a little scene, and John and Ingrid, I'm going to be showing you pictures on my phone, all of which are actual authentic pictures from the Times, and I'll be asking you to like describe it for the listeners and stuff. And listeners, you can see all of these images on the episode post at our website on www.deadideas.net if you want to follow along, okay? All right, so here's the scene. I want you to imagine that the year is 1933, it's late June. You are ambling along the streets of New York City, the Big Apple. You're on your way to your first meeting at a technocracy section house. <laughs> and in your hands, you hold the following pamphlet. Okay, so if you could read this pamphlet for the listeners, please, John. Sure. No political party is capable of instituting a planned economy of abundance on the North American continent. If you think so, investigate the facts uncovered by Technocracy Incorporated. Functional control is imperative. <laughs> that last bit is really creepy. It is. <laughs> Functional control is imperative. Right? <laughs> it's uh, probably not the uh, I like Ike that, that no. I would have run on no. as, as like a political thing. It's or I like Ike what was, by the board. Yeah, or Make America Great Again, or what was Obama's um, Yes We Can. Yes. Right? It's yes, not exactly yes, a can. Yes We Can. Functional no. control is imperative. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, 1933, right? You're on your way to the section house. Everyone that you know is talking about this strange new movement, and you are on your way to try to discover what it's really all about, okay? You've been following the media talk, at first with mild bemusement, you know, this is just another thing that's going to go away. You read the write-ups in Time Magazine, the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, Vanity Fair, Saturday Evening Post, Cosmopolitan, The New Outlook, all of those are actually real articles that I found. You even flipped through March's Judge magazine, which featured a peculiar... I always do. <laughs> what? I always do. <laughs> you always do. I never skip an episode. Never skip an episode yeah. of Judge magazine, which featured a peculiar cover by Dr. Seuss. Ooh. Ingrid, if you would describe this cover for oh, the wow. listeners. So it's very colorful, very Seussian. Technocracy. Does that say number of judge? That's probably just like the issue. Or oh, something. okay. Yeah. And so you have um, all kinds of gears and gadgets and gizmos, and you have three men in top hats and pinstripes <laughs> doffing their caps. Yeah. 
They're kind of like Monopoly guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're definitely doing okay for themselves. And you got all kinds of dancing numbers and equations everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right. So yeah, that was an actual cover by Dr. Seuss on Technocracy, right? So you saw this cover, right? You also went to see this year's silent film called Technocrazy. (laughs) (laughs) 1933 it's a real thing it was a slapstick comedy where the main character wakes from a dream of a utopia where everything runs automatically and then you even went to see the animated short film called technocracked (laughs) starring flip the frog (laughs) and in this animation flip the frog uh, he's frustrated by having to mow the lawn every day. <laughs> and he, he, fought, he opens a copy of Unpopular Mechanics, is what it's <laughs> called. And it has, an episode, uh, it has an article on technocracy. And it says, why be a slave? The mechanical man works while you sleep. And you can actually see this on YouTube. It's on there. Wow. Yeah. And so, of course, he makes his own mechanical man, has him mow the lawn for him. And of naturally, things go awry. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the kind of climate of the media in 1933 around technocracy. And amusing as all of these things are, lately you've started to think that maybe, just maybe, there might be something a little more, you know, worth consideration behind these ideas. You know, you start to wonder if they might actually hold some promise for the future. And most intriguing of all, the thing which has swept the public off their feet is the North American Energy Survey, as they're calling it, which the technocrats currently have underway. It's They're doing this effort to catalog all the sources of energy in the entire North American continent and just have that like as an index to draw from. And just the sheer kind of idea of what you might do with that kind of data has really swept the public of both America and Canada. So there's a lot of hype and interest and enthusiasm right now. As you walk through the streets of New York, you see all around you an unfortunately familiar sight. The dirty and the threadbare everywhere, huddled in alleyways, Whole families dispossessed of home and fortune by the fallout of the recent stock market crash of 1929. And it poignantly brings to mind the recent cover of The Technocrats magazine, which you have also taken a look at. Oh my goodness. Okay, so I'm going to start by just describing what I see here, which is a robot that kind of reminds me of like the Tin Man (laughs) holding like kind of a, a number of lightning bolts in one hand. And what appears to be a person in the other. And then this is standing amidst flames near the Capitol uh, with like a large number of people running around with the (laughs) following 30 million out of work in 1933 or 20,000 a year income for every family, which. Right. Which one do you want? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It's a tough choice. The market made its choice. (laughs) Right. The invisible hand is wiser than I am. (laughs) Yeah. So with all of these things in mind, you enter Greenwich Village, where you've heard that all of this started. Apparently it was here that an engineer, a giant of a man, literally six foot five inches tall, this guy was huge, named Howard Scott, reworked the ideas of economist Thorstein Veblen. Meanwhile, Scott's neighbor living in the apartment above him, who was a writer named Harold Lebb, also got interested and they kind of started collaborating And Leb gave it a little bit more of a palatable form in his book, Life in a Technocracy, what it might be like. So they had this little bit of like a 
Three's Company kind of vibe of, or like Seinfeld where it all happens in one apartment <laughs> and people just come over. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, finally you reach your destination, the section house. The technocracy section house is marked by a large white and red symbol, which looks to us today, we would think that's a yin yang symbol, but it's white and red. Hmm. And they called it the monad. And it symbolized balance between, any guesses? Um, energy and, John? Production? <laughs> oh, you guys are actually really close. Um, yeah, I was, I was probably going to guess like man and nature. Or, you know, <laughs> uh, it symbolizes balance between production and distribution. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so... You knock on the door of the section house, and it's answered, to your great surprise, by a woman. Hmm. A what? <laughs> <laughs> They're letting them do these things? First 1930... vote, now opening doors. It's 1933, right? <laughs> so, interesting. Perhaps it's true what you've read, that a full half of the technocracy movement is made up of women. Wow. Yeah, interesting aspect of it. She salutes you, welcomes you in. And here is the scene that you see inside. Now, this picture is actually from 1942 or something. It's a little bit later, but it's, a, it's pretty close to what it would be like. So um, so we've got two rows of people. We've got the men in the back and the ladies in the front. Pretty even split. All fairly young, I would say. They look pretty like young 20s, would you say? Mm. Um, and they are saluting. And what they're wearing Matching blazers? Oh, I was hoping it was lab coats. <laughs> right. Nope. Well, yeah, not lab coats. I, I guess that makes would make a lot of sense. Um, but they had a kind of uniform. Um, they were they would wear all gray. And in the 30s, it was probably more like um, gray breast coats, and both men and women. And then you'd have like a blue necktie, and you would have the red and white monad like as a lapel pin or something. Nice. In this case, they've got a little bit more 40s looking blazers on with mm-hmm. a, uh, like a monad badge. But okay. yeah. And I don't know why they're all young in this picture and evenly split between men and women. But it, it spanned a variety of ages, especially in the 19, the early 30s, like 32, 33. There were a lot of older people interested because Great Depression meant suck it for old people because uh, there was no like social security yet at the time. Sure. Right. In a few years, they would institute stuff like that. It would, it would suck a lot of the older people interested in technocracy away from the movement because they were now getting their needs met. But at the time, a lot of old people as well as young people interested in it. So you're in, you are ushered into the packed living room of someone's apartment. Apparently, the speed of the movement's rise over the last year or so has clearly outstripped the speed at which it can acquire proper housing for its movement. So everybody's just jammed in here and you can't even find a seat you're kind of like have to find an open spot to stand uh, in a corner kind of feeling like a sardine in a can or something everyone in the room man and woman alike wears that same fashion the gray with the blue necktie and the monad lapel pin and finally a man rises and calls the meeting to order and he says welcome to all gathered here in hopes of a brighter tomorrow Tonight I will read to you the address delivered by Mr. Howard Scott this morning in Chicago at the National Technological Congress and Continental Convention on Technocracy. (laughs) It was a real address. Yes. After reading, we will have a brief Q&A session. The address is entitled 
technocracy, science versus chaos. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have the actual text of this thing. Right. Unfortunately, like a lot of technocratic writings, it's a little hard to follow. So instead of reading directly from it, I'm going to summarize and fill in a lot of the details and kind of like give you an overview of what their plan was. And what I want you guys to do now at this point is at any point in this process, just interrupt me if something doesn't make sense or if you have more questions or want to hear more about something. Sure. And somewhere amidst all of that, we'll try to get a bigger picture of what their plan was. Okay. And that'll be most of the rest of this episode. And at the very end, we'll, we'll discuss like how the movement kind of faded. Okay. All right. Deal? Okay. So... Just about all the technocratic writings that I read kind of follow a same, a similar structure to them. They start with what's wrong with the state of things as it is, and then how it could be in the technate. This address pretty much follows the same pattern. So as you listen to this guy, these are some of the ideas that he goes over. So in the current state of things, everything is run by the price system. That is the exchange of money. It's the only way that anybody has ever known it. Even in the Soviet Union, which is communist by this point, they still kept money. Uh, they have the ruble. So nobody has ever tried living without money, at least not on a nationwide scale. However, the advent of technology is causing the price system, which had been just fine for ages and ages and ages, to become self-destructive. So in the past, and in most of the parts of the world today that lack this abundance of natural resources that North America has, the ability to produce goods was and in those places is limited by manpower. So you couldn't just produce, produce, produce because you were limited in how much you could produce by just working with your own hands. But with the advent of technology and factories and assembly lines and, you know, the whole like kind of like um, Ford assembly line kind of process, uh, Production is just outstripping demand, or at least it has the capacity to. So that's a difference in time, you're saying, though, not geography? Because you mentioned North America specifically. They think it's a difference in both. Now, you could argue that. So, for example, someplace like the Soviet Union, they say in a lot of these writings, they single out places like this and say, like, they, they don't have enough natural resources within their borders, and they have to do a lot of trading with other powers in order to bring in the natural resources that they need or the raw materials that they need. And so they couldn't really be a technate in themselves because they, they're not self-sufficient enough. And also in Russia, in the Soviet Union, Soviet Union kind of went from zero to a hundred in terms of like um, industrialization. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're still pretty like backwards and agrarian in most parts at this point. So they didn't have the kind of like factories and infrastructure and stuff that North America does. So they do mean history up to the industrial age, and then also the places other than North America. I just, they're not ready for a technate yet. Hmm. But North America is right on the cusp. Right. And this has made me wonder, like, when they speak about North America, are they pretty much just speaking about the United States and Canada, or are they including Mexico in the mix? They're including all of North America from Canada all the way on down to Panama Excellent. in okay. their... Good in what they want eventually to hopefully be the technate. Okay. Because they think that that's um, the ideal balance between like one contiguous unit and having enough 
resources be, you know, amidst all that space. Sure. At minimum, they, in order for the technate to work, they think they need to have both the United States and Canada okay. involved. Central America and stuff, I think, is like maybe bonus. Sure. <laughs> but but at, at least you have to get both the United States and Canada on board for it for the whole plan to work. Sure. So the situation in North America is different than in those other places. It's abundant natural resources, like I said, and it's advanced technological infrastructure. Exploiting those resources is dramatically increasing the ability to produce goods, and this is a problem because it threatens to topple the price system. And as uh, just to review, the two main reasons are when you have too much supply, then the price drops out of the market. And uh, a capitalist economy naturally holds you back from doing what you could do. The second reason is technological unemployment thing, where if machines are putting people out of work, then they don't have money to buy the goods that you're producing. And that's a problem, too. Wouldn't be a problem if you didn't have to buy the goods. Right. So those are the two big reasons of why things are a problem right now. The result is an economy where the average person must work themselves to the bone to obtain just enough of what they need to survive because the prices or things just naturally go to, you know, as much as you can get while the people being able to buy them, you know. So you're always pretty much just on the edge of being skinflint, but it doesn't have to be that way. In contrast, the technocracy offers a vision of a very different world. In the technate, the price system is abandoned. There's no big business. There's no business of any kind, and there's no money of any kind. And indeed, the economy is actually centrally planned by a government that's run by experts who are in their positions not by courting financial backers nor swaying voters with like charisma and stuff, nothing like that, but purely by appointment, purely on the virtue of expertise in their field. So appointment by whom, right? That's that's where you like immediately run into challenges right. with this whole idea of like avoiding favors and yep. yep yep yep. Did you have something else you wanted to say? I mean, similarly, I was going to ask if there were some versions of the technocracy movement that where they felt that it was compatible with democracy in the way that we think of it. Um, they were pretty anti-democracy. Really? Okay. <laughs> what they what they did allow is um, that the president could continue to be democratically elected. But the president would just not have any power and would just be a figurehead like the Queen of England is now. Okay. <laughs> so, just, just to give the people something to focus on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they allowed for that. Okay. But otherwise, they thought it's just stupid to let the average uneducated person decide who is going to run the country. And, and actually, they were even a little more depending on what your opinion of how democracy really works is. They were a little cynical about how democracy really works. They thought that it wasn't even really the common person, really. It was really more about like lobbyists and financial backers and stuff. Sure. So basically you had big, big business in control. So now the question about like who appoints the people who get appointed, yeah. the other people who got appointed <laughs> who are above <laughs> them. Yeah. And why is that not a problem? That's, that's hard. They never have a completely clear answer, but the, it's basically they would be like, well, what motivation would people have to do something like nepotism or to favor certain people or other people? Uh, because you already have enough of everything you need already. What are you going to gain by that? Right. But 
power has never motivated anyone. <laughs> I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to argue. I, I think that it's quite an idealistic view of sure. human nature. They do definitely acknowledge that people are still motivated by all the same ugly things. Mm-hmm. And in okay. fact, prestige is probably the biggest thing that they think will motivate people in the absence of being motivated by making money. The ability to gain prestige by, I'm the directorate of this sure. such and such department, or I invented the widget that's revolutionized everything. Which is also very Star Trekian. Like, yes. All of those people in Star Trek, they work merely for the joy of working and for like the prestige it might bring like. exactly and that's what that's what they thought life would be like without money right. as a motivator yeah but yeah i'm not saying that there's some little bit of like <laughs> some questionable elements to that certainly there is uh so anyway these experts uh administer the production and the redistribution of goods and that's pretty much the entire role of government at least in Leb's version, and the other versions are not that far off. Government's not there to decide what you should do with your body, whether you should have an abortion or not, or pretty much everything. It, it would consider itself not anti-moral, but irrelevant to morality. People can decide morality for themselves. Sure. An amoral government. Kind of like a separation of moral, morality and state, like we have separation of church and state. So... You would basically just have a government that's there to make sure that everybody gets what they need. Right. So they're in charge of distribution. Mm -hmm. Are they in charge of production as well? Yes. Okay. Both of those things. Yep. Yin and yang. Yep. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah, that's the monad, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which would then suggest that they would need to be in charge of a lot of people's employment. Everybody's employment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So basically, how how does that work now? Okay, so... These guys administer the production redistribution of goods. The cost of goods, so if you want, you're an average person, you want to get something that you need, right, is not determined by supply and demand. It's determined by ergs, which is a measure of the amount of <laughs> ERGS, ergs. It's a measure of how much energy it takes to produce it. Um, so... You're not, and you're not buying it in the same way you would with money. You're basically just being like an acknowledgement that this consumption is happening right now. And you get, as a, as a citizen of the technate, you are issued an allowance that lasts for two years, an allowance of these energy certificates. And anytime you want something, you write in the number of ergs that it costs. And it's like punched and like transmitted to like a central receiving agency somewhere that just keeps track of how much of everything is being consumed so that they know how much to produce, you know, in the future. Sure. And it's deducted from your allowance. That's good for those two years. But it's you have so much in your allowance that it, they think it's unlikely that anybody will ever spend up to their entire allowance. <laughs> <thoughts. laughs> that's, what, that's what they think. <laughs> that's part of it. And I don't, uh, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> we'll go with that. Okay. Okay. We'll go with that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that was that answers one of the questions I had, which is kind of how do they determine what needs to be produced? And you're right. saying that it would be based on sort of the data that they get exactly. from last year. It's tracked. Okay. I don't know if it even has to go as far back as last year. Okay. They said they have like a like a 24-hour basis that they're constantly updating things on. Wow. So I don't know how fast 
1933 technology, you be, could process yeah, that, right? You could a computer for okay. that. Well, it might spur some, yeah. you know, yeah. rapid advancements, right? <laughs> yeah. Punch card technology. Yeah. But, it, like, it wouldn't be that far off for them to be able to, like, do some kind of centralized tracking of some of that stuff. Like, you know, five, ten years out, they could have been doing simple computer stuff for some of sure. it. Yeah, there, was already, there was already basic computer stuff already happening. Do you know when the first... This is going to sound like a stretch when I tell you, but do you know what the first punch card computer was? Was that like the Babbage thing? In the Before that. Oh, I'm not sure. It was in the 1700s. It was like a kind of loom for making brocaded fabric. Okay. And it was technically a punch card thing because they actually had these like, I think there were strips of wood or something that had like things punched out of it. And it, it just had a mechanical way of reading those to tell it where to put the threads. Awesome. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and then it was just kind of like a slow tick by tick development of computer technology from there. So, you know, you could imagine that kind of thing. Yeah. But even if they didn't have computer punch card mm-hmm. technology, yeah. they had the, a very complex telephone system right. and okay. like a telegraph system and that's what they were counting okay. on at least in 1933 uh so yeah they are imagining to very very closely track consumption to know how much to produce interesting now you might think that that whole energy certificate thing they're not calling it money but it, but come on guys it's money right yeah yeah Actually, it's pretty different from money for a couple of reasons. First, it expires. After two years, if you haven't used up your allowance, it's gone. You get a new allowance, but you can't hoard it past those two years. But how can I make my descendants better off? (laughs) (laughs) You don't need to. Everybody's as good off as they ever need to be right now in the tech age. Come on. The other thing is only you can use your energy certificates. They have your name on them. They have like where you where you were born, I think, stuff like that. Just all kinds of identifying information, so nobody else can use your certificates. So you, nobody can try to steal them from you. Nobody can pressure you into handing them over. Uh, what, <laughs> what can I use for a black market economy? Yeah. <laughs> Bitcoin. Nineteen thirties <laughs> develops Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah, it's super fun to think of the ways in which people would think to get around that because people right. will always they'll always, always try. get away or well get around in a second i'll get to that because yeah. they actually built in a way to get around it Ooh. okay yeah but first i want to just finish with this little little sure. bit here yep. okay so this i thought was really interesting in addition to having all your identifying information on it so that nobody could use your energy certificates except for you it even had your gender listed because they wanted to ensure that Males and females neither could, like, use their economic ability to sway the other romantically. Like, if I was a man, (laughs) and it said man on there, and I know that in 2018 we're a little less, like, binary about gender, right? But this is 1933, right? Okay? So, if it it said man on my energy certificate, I couldn't use it to buy a woman's dress. Because it was like, you're you're buying that... (laughs) You're buying that to economically sway her for, like, sexual favors or well, whatever. Now you know, I want right? to write a musical called The Erg Diggers of 1933. <laughs> <laughs> Erg Diggers. <laughs> nice. So that's how they're thinking about it. I mean, it's, uh, wow. they weren't just nerds in technology. They're actually progressive in terms of social values, at least in terms of gender. Sure. Race also, too. I mean, they weren't very focused on race, but it was like equal allowance for everybody regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of age, regardless of status, regardless of 
whatever you want to say. Everybody gets the same allotment. So kind of interesting. Yeah. For, you know. So is my only way to sway somebody of the <laughs> sway somebody into romance being a cool like director of X or Y organization or, or something like that now? Well, or having a personality or being I think, good looking. I think you could still make a really rockin' mixtape. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but other than that, yes. Oh no, man. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah kind of a very different world that it would be yeah. to live in now uh you mentioned getting around yeah. this uh, you would find ways to sway people so they envisioned a whole secondary economy called the booth market <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same as a black market because it's not at all illegal but it's a secondary economy that doesn't involve this whole like energy certificate stuff so in your little community it's called an urbanate that you would live in. There'd be all these tiny little, like, 20,000-ish people urbanates. Anyway, in your community, there would be a place you could go. And if you if you just were interested in, like, crafts or, you know, like, fashion or whatever, and you made your own stuff using your own, you know, energy certificates to get the materials, and you just liked sewing or whatever, sure. you could sell your stuff. And then you could barter with other people to trade those. Or you might even um, have some kind of like barter script. And so by that means, you can actually like get around the whole energy certificates thing. And they thought, it'll be fine. We're not concerned with this because people are going to have enough of what they actually need. They're not going to want to, you know, amass hordes of riches and stuff because you already have hordes of riches just as an average person. Sure, yeah, you <laughs> know. You're not going to try and corner the market on homemade green cards at the... <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> your local urbanate market. Right. Now, if we do know our Star Trek, <laughs> even if you're motivated just purely by prestige and stuff, things can get pretty ugly. <laughs> <laughs> so I do imagine that there would be some ugly moments. And the technocrats didn't really deny that either. They're just like, yeah, we don't really think that it's just going to be like a pure heaven on earth like people are still just going to be ugly but it's going to be better than it is now is basically what sure, they're at the end of their argument usually was for everything it's like yeah there'll be a little bit of this corruption there'll be a little bit of this like power seeking and stuff but it'll be better than now yeah yeah but what do you got to lose argument yeah basically yeah, yeah. come on <laughs> just try it just try to switch the whole system over. Yeah. now how about uh, your employment Okay, so how does employment yeah. work? Oh, is so, it like the chip in Futurama? <laughs> I, I, I forget how the chip works in they Futurama. They just assign a job to you and implant a chip. Oh, and right. And you are only allowed to work that job. <laughs> so it might have to be at like a gear or a flywheel or something yeah, in 1933. probably not a lot of implanted <laughs> devices in the 30s. Not very safe. <laughs> but... Like we were saying before, the the central, it's called the continental control, <laughs> is like the centralized government thing. Yeah, it... It basically finds a job for everybody. It doesn't tell you what your career is going to be. As a child growing up, you get to choose, but you're kind of pretty closely tracked from an early age. You funneled into, uh, you know, a career-oriented, technological-oriented school that gives you your skills that you need for your trade and so on. So kind of predetermined, but also you get to choose. You have hmm. choice along the way. 
So it's like the sorting hat kind of thing where it's like, <laughs> you will be sorted, but if you really, really protest, like, I, I'm definitely a Slytherin. Come on. I'm not a Hufflepuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Maybe more like a steampunk sorting hat yes. rather than a magic sorting hat. Yes. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah kind of the sim- okay. similar principle. Okay. And then once you're in your career, you would be part of one of these urbanates that's focused around a particular factory, and your factory makes whatever, maybe you make cars, maybe you make socks, maybe you make, I don't know, flugel binders, do <laughs> <laughs> the little plastic things on the end of your shoelaces, you know, and you only have to work four hours a day, four days a week for only 20 years of your life. Oh. And then you can retire. <laughs> oh. Pretty sweet. And what they figured that because, time? you know, there's going to be so much, so machines are mostly going to replace us in terms of workers yeah. your main job for most people is going to be watching the machines yep. <laughs> <laughs> i know i know like just just so many different sci-fi plots where yeah. things go awry by the end of the movie is are forming in our minds right now i know but it's a utopian vision for them right sure. so we'll keep it there so you your job is basically to operate the machines make sure that everything is running smoothly and they don't really need that many people to do that now, if it was a price system, like I said, that would be a problem because people need to earn money in order to buy stuff in order to get, keep the economy going, right? Mm-hmm. But in this case, not a problem. We only have enough goods production in order to keep you employed for 16 hours a week for 20 years of your life. Okay, then yeah. that's the case. Right. <laughs> have fun for the rest of your life. <laughs> Sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. But what, what do we do? What, what are we yeah. supposed to do? <laughs> with the rest of your time? Yeah. That is also an interesting question. Yeah. So you can do whatever you want, what? basically. <laughs> now, what will people do with their time? So maybe people will turn to drink. That's what they said. I'm <laughs> <laughs> spending time with family. <laughs> but you would just, as a society, address that in a medical way, like for people who take it to excess, you know, they would just kind of find out what's what's wrong, give you some therapy, and just kind of, you know, like, deal with it that way. So that brings up an interesting question to me. Had Prohibition been abolished yet? I don't remember when that... Oh, okay. Um, so it was 1919 when Prohibition started. Yes. Let's find out. Okay. Because I just remember when it started. I never can right. remember when it actually ended. Yeah, I remember 1919 because that's root beer, right? Yep. It started because they were making beer and then they had to make root beer. 1933. Oh. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so right the time that we're talking, prohibition is lifted in the United States. Okay. Yeah. So, anyway, they were like, yeah, people might turn to drink, but they're already turning to drink. Mm -hmm. And anyway, they'll have most of their needs met, and most of the ugliness of, like, substance abuse is out of desperation. So it won't be as bad as it is now because people won't be desperate. They'll have everything that they need. Same thing they thought with crime. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people will, there'll be some crime, but a lot less crime than now because it's mostly out of desperation. Yeah. yeah. That's a fairly progressive so, viewpoint, I would think, for that time. They also thought, like, we don't need to actually do any capital punishment or any traditional punishment at all. Yeah. It would rather be dealt with in a medical way. Like, Ooh. what's going wrong with you in your life? 
that's causing you to act out like this. So that sounds super progressive, but I'm also picturing really, really horrifying ways that it might go. Oh, I know. Like 30s era, like psychiatric treatments or what (laughs) have you. Right. 30s, yeah. An asylum for, yeah, somebody who is (laughs) shoplifting. Yeah. (laughs) When they, like, just... Just for the thrill of it, because why would you shoplift? Oh, but totally. why would you shoplift now, right? Because you usually have enough money if you're a shoplifter, but you just do it for the thrill of it, right? Depending. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, yeah. And obviously, like, all of these things could spiral into those kinds of, like, dark sci-fi things. Like, right. any utopia is, right. like, razor's edge away from dystopia. So We're so attuned to taking it in a dystopian direction yeah. now that, yeah. yeah, it's just the easiest things for us to, to think of, but... Anyway, let's see. So what else can I say? So as a result of all of this system, advances in production are basically not held back because there's no danger of price drops due to an oversupply of product. Prices are not based on supply and demand, only on how much energy it takes to produce them. Nor is technological employment a problem because people don't need to be fully employed in order to earn money to buy what they need. And they're given the means to obtain what they do need by these energy certificates. Meanwhile, they enjoy the luxury of a much reduced work week. Theft and exploitation are impossible, quote unquote, because energy certificates are not transferable between people and government officials can't be bribed. For the same reason. People live lives where none of these things are really problems, where their needs are met by an economy of abundance and where they have ample free time to pursue scientific, artistic and other pursuits at their leisure. That's the vision of technocracy. <laughs> so, yeah. What else do you want to hear about? I'm sold. <laughs> I had my doubts at first. <laughs> so what happens, like, how do you... Tra- this is a big question in Star Trek, sure. too, right? Yeah. How do you trade with people who don't follow this abundance yes. economic system? Like, how do you, like... You know, we're making a ton of refrigerators here, and they want them in England. Like, do they give us money? Do we just barter? Like, what the hell? Like, what do, right. we, what do we do? I'm glad you asked that, because that's a really interesting thing, too. So, first of all, what's the technocratic view on foreign trade? The technocratic view on foreign trade is, it's really, really weird what we're doing now. Basically, you try to sell as much as you can as exports to make money, right? Right. But in their view... Anything going out of the country is a loss, and anything coming into the country is a gain. So why would you do that? Oh, so we are just going to be insular for trade, but we're going to have people whose jobs is piracy, where they bring goods in from other countries, right? Well, okay. (laughs) So they would say that you might have a few people being pirates, but most people wouldn't because why would they need to, right? But let's say... And they did have examples of this. Let's say that there's something that could be produced more cheaply abroad than inside the technate. Okay, and they gave the example of manganese. It was easier at the time, apparently, to produce it in the Soviet Union than in North America. They said, not a problem. If you're trading with another country that is like the Soviet Union or another technate, you just make a direct negotiation. What do you want? This is what we want. Let's trade. If you're trading with a capitalistic country, then what you have to do is you pick whatever your whatever the technate's product is that's most desired or best, say automobiles, for example, ship a bunch abroad, sell them abroad, then you have the currency to buy what you need and you import it back. Okay. 
and done deal. <laughs> so, but for the most part, there it's it's a very isolationist view, yes. which feels weird for us today being Americans in 2018. But up until World War II, America was an extremely isolationist country. Yeah, it's just so hard to imagine, like, just, like, our modern economic system is so crazily enmeshed and, yeah. like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> yeah, I would have thought that the answer to that question would just be that there's nothing outside of North America that we need. <laughs> <laughs> right. They that really like the... that idea of just, like, we have all the resources here. Yeah, and... right. Well, that's mainly, that's mainly, I think, what their mainstay would be for most things, mm-hmm. right? But they would look at it in terms of, like, an economic trade-off if there was some way to get it cheaper sure. abroad. Now, that might raise some questionable issues, like, let's say it's cheaper to get shirts from Southeast Asia because they're using sweatshops over there in their capitalistic society. Do we trade with them or do we not? I don't know. Do we spread the technique to them? <laughs> <laughs> also, yeah, What what is the... I don't think I read anything in terms of, like, what's their plan for the technate spreading abroad. They didn't really seem to have a world-conquering goal right. in terms of indoctrination of the world. Or... So it doesn't have that communist idea of, like, mm. a kind of world revolution. No, no, they didn't have that, probably because at the time they viewed that they, they viewed it like North America is the only one that really could be a viable technique sure. yet. And I was sort of wondering if that was, I don't know, if, if their North America thing was kind of like a proof of concept for a larger technique, right. or if it's really more of a sort of... Yeah, are we know, a beta if, test? Or? Yeah, or if it was <laughs> like thinking that they're sort of superior to other countries, or if it's like a white supremacist uh, kind of thing, or like a Okay, a so Western... I, I think if you scratch beneath the surface, I yeah. don't think it would be difficult to find a little bit of superiority, a little bit of white supremacy and such, even though on the surface, they really feel like and probably believe themselves to be very equal-oriented, mm-hmm. or progressive in terms of race and things like that. But it was ni- the 1930s. Sure. Come on, right? You know? Yeah. So I'm sure there was a lot of these, that. These were people who grew up in school with like what we would consider terrifying like history textbooks that lionized like colonialism. Oh, and yes. All and, yeah. and little known fact, this same year that we we're mainly focusing on, 1933, same year that the Silver Legion of America was formed. Have you ever heard of that? It sounds terrifying, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> it was the American fascist movement. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Yes. Led by uh, William Dudley Pelly, who ran for president against FDR. Not not the main opponent against him, but one of the people on the ticket in 1936. Ooh. He didn't gain hardly any vote, but, right. but it was a thing. They were called the Silver Shirts. Yeah. And it's a little bit kind of like creepy to compare like the gray shirts of the technocrats to the silver shirts of the fascists at the time but nothing i found actually suggested that they were mimicking each other or related in any way so make with that what you will right so yeah everything shakes out i mean except for the whole like uh technocrats being in charge by appointment, a mysterious <laughs> appointment at all. Right. Yeah, it's everything really, else. These are people right. who really believe in meritocracy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's just like, Ugh. yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, the bottom line is, like so many things, even if there's some corruption and tyranny. Okay, let's just admit some corruption and tyranny. Let's just say mm-hmm. we do hypothetically. 
There's probably way less than in the like the capitalistic right. democratic and society, that's, right? That's a that's a realistic and kind of emotionally mature way of looking at it, where mm-hmm. it's like, you know, we can't make heaven on earth, but we can make improvements, right. and yeah. you know, that's that's fair. So the there were a couple of reasons why this didn't actually happen, though. So if you're ready for it now, we can move to the last part of the episode, which is how did this. Uh, idea fade didn't die as we said before but how did it fade sure yeah okay so it wasn't really any one thing but it was a combination of things okay so the technocracy movement reached its zenith of like mass movement kind of appeal around 1933-1934 at one point one technocratic organization claimed as much as 250,000 members And that was just one of the several technocratic organizations. But even in its zenith, the public was already starting to tire of it. And an editor in the New Outlook noted that the technocracy got onto the floor of Congress just 28 and a half hours before it was used as the basis for a radio skit by Eddie Cantor to advertise a brand of coffee which apparently dates rapidly. So in other words, this radio guy is like being like, this is like technocrat coffee. Look, it fades really fast. <laughs> it's past its expiration date. Like people just got tired of it really fast for the following reasons, right? Okay. So first of all, Roosevelt was in office. Like he got elected for the first time in 1932, which is just the start of the like the general populace being aware of technocracy. And part of that campaign was talking about how we're going to solve the Great Depression. And the technocrats were putting forward this vision. So it was kind of like bringing interest in, right? But then Roosevelt wins the ticket and he institutes the New Deal kind of politics to put people back to work and kind of different kind of stuff. And that kind of ameliorates the problem enough that, eh, we fixed it good enough that we don't need to take money away from everybody. (laughs) That people start to lose a little interest in yeah, that radical the, vision. That's the thing. Like, I think when people talk about these kinds of like radical shifts, they mm-hmm. sound really great. But for most people, like a Band-Aid fix yeah. is going to be so much more palatable because it doesn't require them to like shift around their entire like paradigm of living. Yeah. You know? I mean, the, the, the main thing about technocracy is this... <laughs> Guys, I get this great idea for a new society. The only hitch is... Everybody who's rich has to just give us all their money and stop being rich. Yeah. <laughs> about that part. Yeah. It's kind of a hard sell. Yeah. For, and these rich people seem to have some influence and their voice <laughs> yeah. spreads a little bit. So, right. Yeah. The second factor in the fading was factionalism. Mm. Almost immediately within the technocratic community itself, they just started factionalizing and breaking and just like there was like kind of bitter kind of toxic stuff between leaders who are like, no, it should be this way. No, it should be this way. And they never did finish their North American energy survey mm. because uh, oh, yeah. things that just, just kind of went south. Well, like the Andorians probably wanted to measure it differently than the Vulcans did. <laughs> <laughs> the yes. Tellarites. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff, stuff like that. They did end up doing later something called the Chart of Plenty that was kind of like it, but no. It was by that time, it was kind of a little, it was too little too late, basically. The third reason that it lost cred is because a lot of the energy research that they did do turned out to be kind of exaggerated and pseudoscientific. And even Howard Scott's own engineering credentials turned to be a little less. uh, (laughs) They should have appointed someone better. (laughs) 
a little less, uh, you know, Who was in charge of appointing people? That multiple, Come on. Ch- that multiple choice test that they <laughs> used to determine who was in these, like, cabinet positions just didn't quite work. Yeah, so they lost a little cred there. The fourth and perhaps most important factor was a completely incompetent political action plan. <laughs> so if you think about all of this, you're trying to persuade the people to, you know, institute this whole idea, right? What are you selling them? What have they, what's going to be their stake in it? At most, they're hoping that they'll have a better life than in the Great Depression, right? You've got that. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you're saying, you're asking them just to be like, I give up all control over to you guys who seem to know what you're doing. And my main job in all of this is just to recognize that I have to give you guys control. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's really nothing that you give the people to feel or to do to be part of a movement and to feel like they're participating in this, you know? The most that they get to do is just, like, get educated by you. And that was the the technocrats' whole plan. Just standard nerd, just like, we're just going to educate the F out of people and eventually they'll get it. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually they'll get it to the point where they can make the kind of political change where the constitution and all of this would have to be, would be able to be rewritten to allow this to actually happen. Yes. Which is (laughs) kind of a big, uh, kind of a big thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because they're not going to do that by force. Like, they seem like too big of nerds to to have a That's a good question. So there, there had just been the Russian revolution which instituted communism by force. And they were like, you know what? We don't think we actually need to do that. And we don't want to do that because you would destroy so much of the infrastructure that we're going to depend on. Totally fair. Um, But we're just going to educate the F out of you. (laughs) (laughs) People really respond to people explaining things to them. I'm just going to explain it to you really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, the last factor was when World War II broke out. First of all, that kind of solved the Great Depression, putting people back to work. But uh, more importantly, there was a little bit of hysteria about technocracy being anti-American because some of that early stuff was sort of anti-war. They were not about being up in arms in terms of doing a revolution, and they were not necessarily in favor of like armed ventures abroad or anything like that, right? So some of the things they had said started to become a little bit of a liability, and they seemed a little anti-war, therefore anti-American when you start getting into World War II. Actually, it turned out that the technocrats turned out to be some of the most pro-war people (laughs) in the whole war. In fact, they put forward a proposal for total conscription. In other words, every man, woman, and child in America becomes part of the war effort, whether they're in the factory, soldiers, front line, whatever. And they even came up with like in a new idea for an advanced bomber called a flying wing that would be oh, more efficient man. or something. They, I don't know. But it was, again, too little too late. And the damage had been done. They're already The rose was already faded by then. And by like 1947, it pretty much waned down to the point where they were just kind of like off most people's radar. Sure. And they never really recovered. And David Adair writing in 1970 says that participation of the movement in ongoing social affairs has declined to almost nil, was the way he put it. More recently, in 2011, there was a petition on change.org to adopt the technate. (laughs) (laughs) That is a legally binding petition. (laughs) They get enough signatures here. Do you want to guess how many signatures that they got? Oh. 13. 
You're not that far off. Oh, really? I was going to guess way higher. 29. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's kind of a wah-wah. So... But there's a there's occasional modern interest, though. Well, that's the thing. There's a lot of modern political ideas that are very close to oh, yeah. what they're talking about, like technological unemployment leading to like universal basic income mm-hmm. is huge, and that's yeah. on everybody's lips. But the idea of yeah. the idea of like completely rewriting the government to do it is not something that's palatable to a lot of people. I don't think. Yeah, I think you. Yeah, you'd have a lot of Trumps and other Trump-like people that yeah. are very wealthy. I shouldn't, I don't mean to pick on any particular party because Roosevelt was fucking rich too. Yeah. And he was the opposite party. Totally. Right? So. And it's, it's more of just this thing where it's like, for most people in general, incremental changes are a lot easier to accept, mm-hmm. especially like, it's really hard to pull off like a gigantic change like that if it's not a violent revolution that has a good chance of failing and right. leading to tyranny. Yeah. Um, and like... So I could see like Denmark experimenting with universal basic income and even for them it would seem kind of tough or and I don't want to pretend that I know like all of this stuff about it right now. But like these ideas, some of them are really interesting and could be put to use, but it's just like uh... it's one of those things that I wish that life was a computer game and I could just do a save point and then try it and then go back if it didn't work. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Then I would totally go for it. Yeah. 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 So one of the most interesting recent things that I saw was on the website for Technocracy Inc., which still exists, (laughs) and it is called Technocracy Inc. (laughs) Um, There was actually uh, uh, this presentation, you can watch the videos of it, called Transition Plan 2016. And it's still really just not really a transition plan, not any kind of like, how's the government going to change over? It's really just how do we educate the F out of people? Um, but one of the things that that was interesting about it is they updated some of the ideas, especially in terms of how thing, what things cost. So before it was purely based on how much energy it takes to produce something, right? But now in 2016, we have environmental crises and things like that. And they're starting to think about it in a little bit different way. And they're adding into the calculations okay, what's the environmental impact? Sure. So, you know, that, you know, raises the cost if it has a higher environmental impact, lowers the cost if it has, you know, et cetera. So still there's kind of some, there's a, it's a fringe movement, but they're still thinking about it. There's people out there that are, yeah. So you could argue that our current economic system does not factor that in. (laughs) One might argue. Yeah. That would be a whole other episode, <laughs> but I notice I do not disagree. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll finish up for today's episode. Uh, we've got more coming up. Next time, we're going to hear from the writings of technocrats themselves. We're going to hear some snippets and some snark <laughs> from actual technocratic writers. And then after that, we are going to indulge in some alternate history in our third episode, where we try to imagine how could this have really come about? What would an alternate historical timeline B where the technate succeeds with no save points with no <laughs> no we're, we're playing on um iron mode or whatever yes. you call that <laughs> iron where, man yeah mode. you can't iron man mode where you can't go back and like reload yeah um <laughs> yeah so that's what's coming up for the rest of our series here uh join us in the ensuing weeks for that meanwhile big announcement like i said at the beginning we are doing a new portrait giveaway 
Uh, we're doing a drive for reviews on Stitcher, specifically Stitcher, because like I said, we suck at Stitcher reviews right now and we want more. So the first 20 people to review us on Stitcher will get their portrait done in the time period and culture of their choosing. I will do you up as a gray breast-coated technocrat with a blue necktie saluting the monad and progress and a brighter tomorrow. Functional control is imperative. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever you want for your portrait. Just review us on Stitcher. Then drop me a line on Facebook. Um, we're at Dead Ideas Pod for any social media platform. Or at our website, www.deadideas.net. And you can send what you want to be drawn as, as well as a photo that I can work from. And then I will make you look awesome, I promise. I did John as a Warhammer wolf something. Yeah, Space Wolf. Space Wolf from yes. Warhammer, yes. yes. And you can see lots of other examples on our website. Yes. Ingrid, I should do you too. I usually do one for everybody who comes on the show, so whatever you want. <laughs> I definitely like to be a tech <laughs> a, tech, a technocrat? Perfect. You can also support the show on Patreon. Five energy credits a month gets us, uh, helps us keep pumping out quirky new content like this sold on the booth market. <laughs> and uh, gets you a portrait as well, uh, plus ad-free episodes. So show your support, www.patreon.com forward slash dead ideas pod for a better show and a brighter tomorrow. <laughs> All right, John and Ingrid, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we'll see you next time, everybody. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.